Well, we have some technical things to deal with this evening up front, but we're also finishing up two topics. Uh, the catechism question that we have for tonight is the last of the Baptist catechism. It's question 114, which is seven more questions than the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which it greatly borrowed from for most of its questions. And it's the same last question as them. And it's also the last question for the topic of the Lord's Prayer and the topic of praying, which we've been dealing with for about nine questions in the catechism uh, itself. And so the rule or the pattern of prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray is what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's in Matthew 6 is where we find it. It's a, it's a rule or a pattern of prayer, meaning that each of the six petitions in it instruct us on the general elements of what make up Christian prayer. It's also in Luke's gospel as well. Um, a little bit different there, but we've been basing our study here in Matthew's. And not that it's a rule or a pattern in such a way that every time we pray, we must follow the, the pattern exactly. But what it does is it introduces faithful and proper categories to us, and they're, they're put forth to us by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct us. And so you could think of this, this prayer in two sections even. The first three focus on God's glory. They teach us how it is that we should recognize him and approach him, remembering that we, after all, are not God and that we are the ones who need him. We are in need of praying, but he isn't in need of anything, especially anything that we could offer. And then the last three petitions focus on our good, on the good that we seek from God's hand. And so we have a rule or a pattern by which we can order our thoughts and biblically pray along the tutelage of Christ Jesus, who is God, and then knows we as his creation how it is that we should pray. And further, he knows our need in prayer perfectly. And he modeled prayer many times for us, not just with the Lord's prayer even. Uh, the God-man whose prayers were never hindered, whose prayers raised the dead, whose praying prevent the evil one from sifting us like wheat, whose prayer for the church in John 17 guarantees that the church will prevail, who is even now praying for his bride, the church, in his glorified, exalted state at the right hand of the Father. He gave us this prayer as a rule or a pattern, and we should gladly receive the help offered to us in it. But also... Because this prayer is given to us from Jesus, whose prayer life is so exemplary, and even more, because of who he is, we shouldn't be afraid to pray this prayer as it is, either by ourselves or corporately. There's nothing in Scripture, at least, that would prevent us from praying this prayer. It's, it's possible to say it without it becoming vain repetition, just like some churches recite the Ten Commandments without that being an empty tradition. Just like people may recite the creeds together without that being vain repetition and empty-minded. Or how people would recite the catechism question and answers together. Or how scripture is recited together with responsive readings. Or even how we do the Lord's Supper. And it's done basically the same way every time. And we recite the same scriptures every time. And each time we do it, I think that those scriptures retain meaning when we do it. We're not just saying them and shutting our minds off of when we do it. And so you can pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, every day or whenever you desire to do so with your heart and your soul engaged. And why not? After all, because before these are your words, they are Christ's words given to us. They're divinely inspired words. 
And Christians throughout centuries have done this very thing. Uh, the Didache, who, which is a first century book that goes into detail about the worship of the church in that time period, and more on that in a moment. Um, in this book, we see it being recommended to Christians to recite this prayer three times a day even. And that's most likely based upon how the prophet Daniel prayed three times a day. Uh, the Westminster Directory, and, and that book, the, the document, it dates back to the first century. I mean, it was in the discussion and the talks about what books are inspired or not. And obviously it's not an inspired book, but it's, it tells us what worship was like in the early church. Very good on baptism. I think John talked about it when, he, um, when we deal with that catechism question. There's also the Westminster Directory of Public Worship, and that says this about the Lord's Prayer. It says, And because the prayer which Christ taught his disciples is not only a pattern of prayer, but itself is a most comprehensive prayer, we recommend it also be used in the prayers of the church. The Westminster Larger Catechism, Catechism question 187, asks, How is the Lord's Prayer used? And it says, The Lord's Prayer is not only for direction as a pattern, according to which we are to make other prayers, but it may also be used as a prayer so that it be done with understanding, faith, reverence, and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. That's the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question and answer 187. And it's even sung on a very popular level. I think, uh, randomly, Susan Boyle even has a cover for it. So before we consider the catechism question, the, this last catechism question, I want to encourage you that this prayer is more than just a rule and a pattern. It certainly is that, but you are free, and it is good, and it's a good idea to engage the Lord in prayer through the very words of this prayer, that the things that are prayed for in the Lord's prayer are the very things that we need and should be praying about. And if there's ever a time where you feel like praying, but you don't quite know what to pray, or if you know that you should pray, but you're having a hard time praying, this prayer exists for you. Use it. It's inspired and it's without error then. It, it is a modern, and it's probably, I guess, and this is my guess, that it's probably a modern Baptist idea and development to never pray this prayer specifically. But that's not how our brothers and sisters have thought of it in the past. Now, as it comes to this last question, we have another reason to consider the appropriateness of saying this prayer, and specifically the conclusion of the prayer. That's the last question in the Baptist Catechism, of course. Uh, question 114 in the Baptist Catechism is, what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach? But this is where it gets a little interesting for us. And so before we get to learn from the conclusion, the Catechism cites the conclusion. It tells us what it is, and it cites Matthew 6.13 for us. Does anybody have their Bible open to Matthew 6? Ross, what do you, what is, can you read Matthew 6.13 for us? the ESV. Perfect. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. Verse 13. Verse 13. So, that sounds like petition six, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that is petition six. That's what we went through, uh, Brother Nick preached last week, right, on petition six. We use the ESV, the English Standard Version here at this church, it's a fine translation. But if you note, if you have an ESV with you, there's a, a little footnote on the end of verse 13, either a four or a six. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you go down to the bottom of your Bible in your ESV, and there you'll read that um, it says, or the evil one. So the idea also is not just, Lord, protect us from evil, but from the evil one, from the devil himself. 
And then it also says, some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, but it's not in our ESV, which we use. And it's a good conclusion. It's thoroughly biblical, more on that in a moment, but it's missing from our Bibles. So, should we say the conclusion? I mean, if it's biblical and true, then the answer is yes. It's a concluding doxology, an expression of praise to God. That much is certain, but is it actually in the Bible? And the answer to that isn't so easy. It's not a simple yes or a simple no, but the answer is yes and no. And maybe we could say it depends. It's, it's in some and not in others, after all. Uh, this concluding doxology is in the King James. This is the technical stuff I want to deal with up front. The, this concluding doxology is included in the King James Version, but it's not in the more recent translations. You don't see it in the English Standard Version, uh, the New International Version, or the Christian, St- Christian Standard Bible. But in some modern versions, like the 1977 New American Standard Bible or the Legacy Standard Bible, which I think just came out last year, it has the ending included, but it's in parentheses to show that it's you know, probably not actually inspired scripture. And then there are some modern translations like the New King James Version and the 1995 NASB who just simply include it uh, with no parentheses or anything, just like the KJV. And there's a good understandable reason as to why it's not in modern Bibles. Uh, the King James Version is translated from what's called the Textus Receptus, the received text. It's also called the majority text. And the reason for that is because there's many manuscripts of them with the exception of the book of Revelation. There's like none, <laughs> which is really a weird um, development. But that's why it's called the majority. And the issue is they're not quite as old as the manuscripts that are used for the translations like the ESV or the NASB or even the LSB, um, what those are based off of. Those Bible versions are based off of what is called the critical text or the Masoretic text or sometimes the minority text. And so there are fewer of those and they're more scattered, but they're older and they're more important. And for that reason, modern translations, translators, which is almost a science, a science of translating Bibles, they take them to be more credible, even though there's fewer of them, but because they're older. And it's not that the phrases or words in the Textus Receptus, which you know, aren't in the Masoretic text translations, are unbiblical or untrue. It just seems likely that they were not what the original authors had wrote, which might include this concluding doxology. It also doesn't appear in the Latin Vulgate and the early church fathers, such as Tertullian, Cyprian, Origen, and Augustine, they don't show themselves to be familiar with this conclusion in their writings. But it's not that simple because the 4th century Greek father, uh, John Chrysostom, who was called the golden mouth for his ability to preach, he comments on this conclusion in his sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And further, the doxology is found in many um, ancient Greek, Syriac, and Coptic and Latin manuscripts. And so whereas it's found in ancient manuscripts, it's not found in the best and the oldest ones, the ones that we have at least. Maybe there's some out there that exist tucked away somewhere in some cave or in some private library um, that we're not aware of. But the ones that we have, the best ones, the oldest ones, don't have this concluding doxology in them. But 
actually, we know it did exist in the early church, and we're not, I think, wrong to conclude the Lord's Prayer of this doxology. Remember, I mentioned the, the first century church manual, the Didache, or the Didache, how it called on Christians to recite this, the Lord's Prayer three times a day. In giving the prayer to recite in chapter 8, verse 2, the Didache includes part of this doxology. It says, yours is the power and the glory forever. And then in chapter 9, the same doxology, so just, it's just missing the kingdom part. It has the power and the glory, but just missing the kingdom part. It's included in the instruction for a congregational response to the Lord's Supper liturgy. And so probably it's possible that this was one of the original uses of the doxology, that it was used at formal parts in the liturgy and especially with a congregational response. So is it really in our Bibles taking the contextual differences in and the historical evidence? There's a high likelihood that it was in some manuscripts but the oldest manuscripts that we have available to us don't include it. And so that's why it's not in the ESV, for example. That's why it's footnoted in the ESV. But it's important enough, and because it doesn't contradict Scripture elsewhere, modern translations are going to include it in a footnote or in parentheses. And so in a situation like this, if we're wondering ultimately if we should say it, we need to ask ourselves if it's biblical and true. Does it honor God and glorify Christ? And the answer to those questions is very easy, actually. It's a resounding yes. And for one above all obvious reason, the concluding doxology doesn't even add any ideas that weren't already present in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the answer that the catechism question gives when it reads, listen to what, it ha- what the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer is. It says, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is simply a recap or a summary of what was already prayed for in the Lord's Supper. The second petition mentions his kingdom. The third petition calls on God's power. Fireworks. Those are pretty not. Those are pretty loud. Okay, so the not gunshots. Yeah, it's Antioch. So we're glad for that. So the second petition in the Lord's Prayer mentions the kingdom. The third petition calls on God's power to incline our will to his will. And the first petition asks that God's name would be set apart and glorified in the earth. And so I'm not going to go into detail on all those terms because we've been there already. But, and then the concluding acclamation, the um, amen, is consistent with all that we ask for in the rest of the prayer. Amen isn't just some word that we use to communicate that our prayer is over. It's not just Christianese for the end. Amen means yes or truly or so shall it be. And, and Jesus Christ is the amen, the faithful and true witness according to Revelation 3.14. And we'll talk more about amen at the end here. And so certainly with this Lord's prayer, we end our prayer. It would be right to end it with an amen. You know, we are in Christ, praying with complete agreement, confidence, and hope. And so with eight sermons on the topic of the Lord's Prayer under our belt, I think we can say with confidence, amen to all that the Lord has taught us to pray here. That this is a prayer that Christ himself did not need to pray because he's without sin. He is our sin substitute upon the cross, our sin bearer. But his instruction on prayer here is extremely valuable for us. Valuable and biblical even here in this concluding doxology.
Now, what the conclusion teaches us is three things. There are three points that the Baptist Catechism authors bring to light. And so the Catechism answer continues to read that the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer, one, teaches us to take our encouragement and prayer from God only, two, and in our prayers to praise Him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to Him, and three, in our testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen. So we'll just take these one by one, but not actually in the order that they give them. We're going to go with two first. Um, Because at this point, we've been considering the reasons for reciting this whole prayer. And then most recently, we've been thinking about reciting the conclusion and whether or not it really belongs here or in the Bible at all. And the answer to that that I I wanted to develop was, yes, it is okay um, for us to say that it is biblical and Theological, but there's one more reason that bolsters that argument, and it's the most important reason. As you may have noticed, um, the second point instructs us in our prayers to praise God, ascribing to Him kingdom, power, and glory, which of course are the very things mentioned in the conclusion. Ascribing means that we are declaring and testifying that these things are already His. God doesn't become more glorified or more powerful. He's immutable. He's unchangeable, and he's perfect in all of his ways. His attributes are identical with his nature, and unlike changeable creatures like us, he doesn't gain or lose any of them. And though we recognize that his kingdom is growing as Christ is building it, here as Puritan John Flavel puts it, we are referring to God's universal, essential, and absolute kingdom, wherein it may be and is involved his special kingdom over the church. So in other words, It's his reign that we're praising him for, his reign and his kingship over the church. But notice that the passage cited after Catechism's answer's second point, which is our first point. Um, Notice what it is. It's 1 Chronicles 29. And so the most important reason as to why it's not wrong to use the concluding doxology, even if our translations may not recognize it officially, is because... This concluding doxology has its origins in the Old Testament. It's a thoroughly biblical idea. When the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray this prayer, it wasn't as if he was creating new categories. But his point was to teach us to pray in ways in which God has always acted with his covenant people, especially those in the covenant of grace. And so when I answered the question, is it in the Bible with a yes or no? I was meaning more than it, than it just depends on what translation you're using. The concluding doxology may not be found in Matthew 6, but it is in 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13, specifically verse 11. It comes from the prayer that David prayed in the assembly after the offerings for the building of the temple had been collected and his, that his son would build, Solomon would construct. And it's a beautiful prayer. In God's providence, even I, my daily reading, I felt... Um, came across this and I felt compelled to add it to my list of memory verses because of its beauty and its comprehensiveness before we even before I even knew I was going to have to deal with it here in this um, catechism question. So let's, let's read it. Um, this conclusion of the Lord's Prayer is not only reminding us of the Lord's Prayer itself, the first section of it, the first three petitions, in, but it's also contained in David's prayer. Not going to read the whole prayer, just the opening section of it to see the correlation here. So this is 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. And it reads, 
Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. It's it's a wonderful prayer, isn't it? That's just the start of it. And it's easy to see how the doxology of the Lord's Prayer comes directly from David's prayer. You can even think of the concluding doxology as a summary of David's long prayer. Verse 11 contains all the elements. And again, I'm not going to go into all of these terms since we spent time considering them in previous sermons and we understand what is meant by ascribing power and glory and, and the kingdom here. But it's worth saying that the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer reminds us that it is more than simply appropriate, but it's a good idea for our prayers to be theological. That our, our petitions to the Lord shouldn't be alone. The the preface of the Lord's Prayer spoke to this as well, that Christian prayer is in fact a theological endeavor. Some would suggest that our prayers should only be made up of petitions or requests, and that it shouldn't have any theology in it. Yet, in the testimony of Scripture, we see the Lord's Prayer taught by Christ and the prayers of God's people to Him uh, that are rich in theology and rich in doxology. And that is a lesson we should learn as well, a a rule for us. We see the elders in Revelation casting down their crowns before him and confessing that God alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We see the seraphim confessing in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Prayer, brothers and sisters, it it rightly exalts and honors the name of Christ. For in it, we are speaking to Christ. Christ is receiving our prayers and he's mediating them to the Father in his own perfect righteousness. He calls us to make our requests and our petitions known before him. And he is the one who is all powerful, who has all authority in heaven and in earth. And he brings all things to pass. So we must confess these things to him with regularity and and to proclaim theological truth at the same time with them. The Israelites did this in the Old Testament as they recounted his deeds in in prayer and with that refrain, for his mercy endureth forever. Uh, The petitions, they're they're married to theology and that should bolster our confidence in asking them because of who God is, that we understand who God is as we're praying, which is the third point of the catechism answer. Now, David's prayer shows this as well, doesn't it? that our prayers should be theological, soaked in theology, even more than saying yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. David also said in those short three verses that yours is the victory and the majesty and the greatness. He said that God is over all and he is head above all and that Yahweh is our provider with riches, honor, strength, power, and might. They all come from him and his name is glorious. David's prayer was, was dripping with theology, right theology about God. And as a matter of fact, that's what makes it so beautiful is because it rightly proclaims who God is. Mm-hmm. Or even think of what we call the high priestly prayer from Jesus himself in John 17. 
verse 5, he speaks about the glory that he had with the Father even before the world was created. Verse 11, that the Father has given believers to Jesus, the Son. Verse 14, that he, as well as those that he saves, are properly said to no longer be of this world. That the Father sent Jesus, verse 21. Verse 23, that Christ is in us and the Father in Christ, and that from this mystical union, we share in the same love that has existed in the Godhead from eternity. Right theology, sound theology, is an important part of prayer. And God is teaching us here at the Lord's Prayer that our praying should have its end, its purpose, its goal, all set on the glory and the praise of God. The goal of theology isn't to fill our head with right thoughts. It's certainly not for the purpose of winning debates, though it does those things. But the goal in theology is to praise God rightly and to glorify Him. And the Lord's Prayer is reminding us of this, here in this conclusion. Sound theology lends itself to right doxology, to a joyful doxology. And that makes us think of the first lesson that the Catechism answer puts forward. Uh, We went out of order because I wanted to address the conclusion, inclusion, since we use the ESV here. But if we went in order with the Catechism, we might have said this, that this conclusion is teaching us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only because it is God only who has the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so the, the second point for us, or the first point that the Catechism answer wants to put forward, is that our encouragement in prayer is in God alone. It's not in our ability to pray. It's not in our ability to say the right things or even following the correct rule and pattern. And the conclusion, with its focus on theology, is reminding us that our encouragement in prayer rests solely on the God who we are praying to. And if we might think of it in light of what we've already said, theology is is of very little use to us if it doesn't have at its end its purpose of doxology. That, That is to say that theology that does not center on the praise and glory and the splendor of God doesn't really help us at all. And when it does, then it's of great encouragement to us. And so the Catechism cites a number of passages in Daniel 9. Let's open there and see what we read. We'll go through these kind of quick, just reading them, and then I'll make a couple comments on them after we get through them. But Daniel chapter 9, and we'll talk about the context of them. Catechism cites verse 4, and then 7 through 9, and then 16 to 19. So first, verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So first off, theology, right? That's, he's not petitioning the Lord. He's, he's ascribing glory unto the Lord. And then 7 through 9, he says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. 
and then jumping to 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, there's lots going on here, and I'll try to make sense of it briefly, perhaps criminally brief. But we understand Daniel's context for the most part, I hope. Um, We'll go back to the beginning. God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden. It was do this and live. Adam failed in that covenant. But God, in his graciousness, promised the gospel to him through a son of Eve, who would be the last Adam, who we know, of course, is Jesus Christ. And then to fulfill that promise back in the garden, God spares Noah and he makes a covenant with him and through him for mankind in general. But then God chooses Abram and he enters into a covenant with him that contained temporal blessing, which served as a type and a shadow for that eternal hope that was promised in the gospel to Adam and Eve, which would be true for anyone who truly believed, which Abraham is included among that number. And then God rescues Abraham's descendants from Egypt, and he furthered the covenant through Moses, and he promised Israel a land and blessing, all of it temporally, based on their obedience, which again, served as a type or a shadow of what was true in the covenant of grace, the promise that God made to Adam and Eve. And God keeps his word, and he fulfills all the promises made to Abraham and Moses. Joshua 21, 43 to 45 says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. And not one of their enemies had withstood them, For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But this covenant that God made with Israel was not to usher in the kingdom through them, but it was to preserve a line to the one who would bring about the kingdom, Jesus of Nazareth. And God was patient with Israel time and time again because the promise of salvation, the covenant of grace that was going to be revealed in the new covenant when Christ came. But national Israel failed in the old covenant and the land and the blessing was taken away from them for their disobedience, which was a stipulation of the covenant they were in. And with Daniel, we find ourselves at the beginning of that end, the beginning of that taking away. The end would come when Christ had ascended And the rebuilt temple, which the first one was destroyed in Daniel's day, came crashing down in the wrath of the Lord through Rome in 70 AD. But Daniel, being elect and knowing the Lord through the covenant of grace, prays a number of times in Daniel chapter 9, which are instructive for us. 
Daniel and multiple times through Daniel 9, 4, 7 through 9, and 16 and 19, prays and relies on the merciful and gracious character of God and not himself or not his people. He's aware of the reality of the covenant of grace existing behind and being carried along the temporal covenants with Abraham and Moses and David even. The law has done its work in Daniel's eye and he knows that they are getting what they deserve. And so what does he do? He looks to take his encouragement in the Lord and not himself or national Israel. So let me read again 18 to 19. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, because even their righteousness is like filthy rags, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The encouragement in Daniel's praying lay solely in God and the promises that he made. Pastor W.R. Downey notes, such argumentation must never be based upon our own faithfulness or works, but upon the rule and faithfulness, promises, purpose, and glory of God. And that certainly makes us think of the gospel, doesn't it, friends? It does for me. Because what do we have for what we earned? Our wage, what we've earned, was the wrath of God. We are in judgment and an eternity in hell, continuing all that time in our sin. But because of Christ and because of what he did in Christ, we are able to receive goodness and blessing from God. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians, that we have every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we pray, brothers and sisters, yes, it is true that we are praying as redeemed sons and daughters of God, But our encouragement even now is not found in us and our works, but it's for the sake of Christ that we may find our encouragement in God because it is in Christ that we are accepted. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says in the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, it teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or in any other creature, but from God. That's where it lies. And then lastly, the third point in the catechism answer, points finally line up. Do we really mean what we pray? Do we believe our our prayers matter? Well, what the concluding doxology is teaching us and saying amen at the end is that our amen is a testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard. God is able and willing to help us. And so we, by faith, are emboldened to quietly rely on him and to plead with him that he would fulfill our requests and to testify that, that this is our desire and our assurance that we really believe it. We say amen. When we say amen, there's a couple things going on here. That end up um, meeting at the same place. We either say amen at the end of our own prayers. And again, it's not a crime if we're doing a short prayer under our breath in the heat of the moment. We don't follow this rule given to us in the Lord's Prayer. Or we say it also at the end of another person's prayer. When we say it at the end of, an, of another person's prayer, it's as if we are saying, God, I'm praying this as well. And in both scenarios, at the end of our own prayer, at the end of another person's prayer, we are communicating 
that our desire and our assurance are being heard by God. And because Christ Jesus himself is the amen of God, we mentioned that earlier in Revelation 3.14, then it's again in step with the first lesson the conclusion teaches us, that ultimately our encouragement is in God. Uh, example again, 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. And then it says, That is why through him that we utter our, our amen to God for his glory. You see, saying amen isn't at the end of the day about us. It's for God's glory as well, because he's worthy and because who he is, our desire and our assurance in prayer have actual substance to them. They're not a, a shot in the dark, but through faith, our prayers are true acts of worship. And that's signified by saying amen. Saying amen is important, friends. I try to reiterate this to my family all the time. It's, it's, more, it's about more than just paying attention or concluding a prayer. It's a testimony to who Christ Jesus is, and it speaks to why we pray in the first place, for God's glory. Uh, the Catechism does cite a few passages here. I think mistakenly, it cites 1 Corinthians 4.16, unless they're pointing us to a cop to copy the example of the Apostle Paul, but he's not talking about prayer there. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism cites 14.16, and that's probably correct. The context there is about understanding the prayer and speaking in tongues. And so obviously, if you don't understand what someone is saying, if they're speaking in a language that is unintelligible, then you can't say amen because you don't know what they're even talking about. You can't let your praise resound in Christ without understanding, of course. But at the very end of Holy Writ itself, of inspired scripture, it makes us to think of how the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer ends as well. And I think again, in the light of the testimony of Revelation 22, how important is it to say amen? It's not just some throwaway word. It's the testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard. This is John's response to the whole vision of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, and to the phrase that our Lord utters at the close of it. So listen to this. This is Revelation 22 and 2021. And again, the catechism cites these verses. The last words in the book of Revelation it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And after statements such as those, what better could be said than Amen? I remember what the catechism is, is teaching us there. It's a testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard. It's an important word. It's not just some formal ending. So let's pray. And then if there are other questions or comments, maybe chat about the catechism question, uh, we could talk about those. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are glorious and gracious. There is... None that can compare to you, Yahweh. You are better than all of your creation. And we need you always every moment, Lord. And we ask that you would have our wills be submitted unto you. And that you would teach us, Lord, to hate what you hate. That you would lead us away from all temptation. And keep us from the evil one. And that you would help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Because, Lord, there is none like you. You are the only God. And so we 
praise you and give you all glory. And we ask that you would sanctify us and that you would grow our prayer life, Lord, knowing that Christ, his example of prayer was perfect. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to pray more like our, our Lord and Savior. And we're so glad to know that we have both uh, the Spirit to intercede for us as well as Christ to mediate for us, Father. So we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and thank you for the time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, guys. Well, any um, comments, questions? Fred. Yeah. Is there a difference between in, in Amen in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Because it's like, I heard it means so be it, and then other times it means, you know, that like, you speak the truth. Yeah, same thing. So, it, like in the Septuagint, it'd be translated the same. So, really in the Old Testament, that's where you get the idea, so be it. More in the New Testament, it's it's yes or it is true. Same same thing, right? It's, it's, an, a, it's an acknowledgement of agreement that God actually hears us. And that he's engaged in our prayers. Our prayers matter. So it's the same idea in, in both. Uh, we see it a lot in the Psalms, right? That's where we especially see it. In the Old Testament, at least. But yeah, Same idea, both Testaments. Reminds me of, uh, Jeff might remember this, and Carol, uh, when Tim Sullivan was teaching Sunday school in D.C. Talked about when he was a missionary in the Solomon Islands. And the natives, if you will, to whom he uh, was preaching to would, when they agreed with something that was in the Bible, they, and it was spoken, they would say, true truth. Do you remember that, Jeff? Yeah. 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 Say, true, true truth. He would, Tim would say true, it's a true truth often even, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 We, we say it too, because yeah. we heard him say it, and, and it's, it's kind of along those lines that, that I... <laughs> agree and I, I would have said the same thing and mm-hmm. um, anyway yeah amen just remember Tim that's who we were talking about the other day Armando oh yeah, yeah. I like the part where we were talking about you know how we arrange these things in our leading to a proper doxology I think a lot of times we don't really focus in on that too much you know, the way I praise and the way I worship, you know, if we don't, if our theology is, you know, lacking, that's one thing, but, you know, the motive to get our theology right, like when we were talking about that, it really, I like that part, especially, um, you know, you're not going to worship God correctly. We see that in so many churches today where they're so vanilla or so shallow or squishy in their theology and it just, you can't have your praise, you know, aligned properly if your theology is off. So it should give us the right motivation to want to get our theology right, not just, you know, like you said, about winning debates. That's, that happens, but mm-hmm. it should be so we can approach God correctly, right? Absolutely. fills our heart with joy the better we know the Lord. Uh, we know who we're worshiping, who we're praying to. There's a great irony in that I was, I was thinking of as you were talking, that usually those congregations that tend to be shallow and who are more like what we would call seeker-driven or the sermons consist of what we would identify as like therapy or therapeutic moralistic deism, so just moral, moralistic 
principles and therapy sprinkled with Christian Bible verses is that those churches tend to be very concerned with the music aspect of worship of the Lord. And so they have these big songs with these heavy instrumental movements that are that are designed to make us move and feel but actually the songs themselves are pretty shallow as well but they have this way of of garnishing up emotion in people to get them think that there's some big moving but the reality is if they would just get rid of all that and actually look at what the word says about who god is that's where that true feeling of joy uh, would actually come to them but it's an interesting thing that they almost like try to substitute this you know lights and music and fog machines and everybody dancing and you know hands up um for these lyrics that are very just emotional but kind of theologically shallow at the same time interesting and they produce the soft preaching too right soft yeah. preaching hard hearts i mean yeah i don't need any help with being an idolater i'm pretty good at it by myself right so mm-hmm. it just i just imagine uh, i guess because our kids they go to this school you know it's Predominantly synergistic, <coughs> some Calvinists there. Um, that stuff wrecks people. I mean, I like what Calvin said, you know, our hearts are idol factories. We need to guard against that stuff because that stuff, that stuff will destroy us. Yeah. <clears throat> I can't help but also think that the last portion that we were. You, you spoke at length about whether or not it's appropriately tacked on to the end as is the, as the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. If, if the church had more of a value for that declaration in their praying, then it, it might have guarded the church from the era of prosperity style praying, which is mostly just give, 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 give. Yeah. It's not about the power and the glory of the Lord. It's about my faith is powerful, so you owe me something. And that's yeah. a completely different message. And so I think it... it you see that because of the neglect of yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, that has bled into the way that we wrongly think about prayer and practice it. Yeah. Prayer should be theological. Amen. Yeah. True, true. True, true. True, true. true. <laughs> <laughs> so, one I want to clarify on the, um, the TR and the majority text. So, yeah. Um, saying that they were synonymous but you were saying that um... yeah I am right the Texas Receptus is also known by the majority text right but they're not like there's at least almost 2,000 variations between the two so when you get into textual criticism there's going to be like they're not known by the same like for instance there's little variations between some of the manuscripts you're meaning to say yeah, yeah so, sure. So we're not we're gonna yeah. call them two different things because of, for for that very reason, right? We're not gonna say like we say, hey, the church in Antioch. We're not gonna say, you know, we are Church of the Rock. We're gonna say that church is in Antioch, right? We hold the distinction, makes teach some of the same things, but we're different, right? So the the variations I think when we get into an apologetic standpoint, there's gonna be a variation. Well, it's it's groupings, right? So right. I, I'm not big into textual criticism. Criticism. I mean, I know that there are guys who love. We've talked about this yeah. before. I kind of think that it's, you know, we end up spending too much time on it. 
But um, not us personally, yeah. but others, people in apologetic circles do. But I think it's just, it's speaking of groupings of ancient manuscripts. So from our perspective, all manuscripts are pretty ancient. I mean, whether they're from 400 AD around there or whether they're from like 600 to 800. Um, the Textus Receptus, the, so the, where we get our King James Bible from is from the Textus Receptus. Those are, there's many more of them than there is compared to the critical text or the Masoretic text, which are older, they're more scattered. But there's some differences between them, but they're minor. They're, they're very minor. There's not like anything significant, no different teachings of doctrines or theology. But they just say like, so for example, the Lord's Prayer. In those, in the Textus Receptus, which there is more of those in the Masoretic text, right. it has those manuscripts that we have, which date from like 800, I believe, you know, and, and a little bit further. It has that doxology in it, but the older ones don't have it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there's not some older ones out there that exist that might have, I mean, they might have it. We just don't have them, you know? We right. Like 98% of it agrees. Oh, yeah, so It's yeah. not like we can sit up here and say there's a contradiction. Yeah, it's missing an article here or there or yeah. a phrase here and there. Um, and, and again, most of, most of these modern translations, they're going to acknowledge it, but they'll just put it in parentheses or they'll put it in a footnote because it's still, I mean, it's been valuable to the church and it doesn't teach anything contrary to what, um, you know, is contained even in these other like, translations like the ESV. I just brought yeah, up some theological footnote about the text. <laughs> I see stuff, it. Yeah. yeah, I know that's your, you like that stuff too. So. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say it makes sense that maybe it wasn't in the older text because if it was in the older text, there would be no reason to remove it. Right. it is good. Yeah, they wouldn't remove it if so it was there. That kind of, kind of tells you maybe it wasn't there. So the, the possibility, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. The possibility, I mean, if it says in the Didache that it says yours is the power and the glory, it doesn't have the kingdom. And they were saying that after the Lord's Prayer and they were, after they would recite together corporately and they would say it after they would do the Lord's Supper, perhaps just tradition of the church, people doing it, they, when people were writing down manuscripts and copying it, they just put it there because that's what they did when they practiced it, you know, when they observed it. And again, it actually is in First Chronicles 29, verse 11, uh, minus a few other things. So it's thoroughly biblical and fine. Um, we just don't know that stuff. So, so exactly the exact details. It used to be something we were very 